So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 18 through 22 today. Now I will say, as I, as I posted on GroupMe this week for prayer, that this is a, this is a difficult passage. This is considered one of the more difficult passages in the New Testament, if not the most difficult. Um, so, needless to say, I had a very busy week, worked a couple 12 plus hour days at work, and then much overtime on this as well, as I was talking to my wife last night. Um, now, I don't say that for you to feel sorry for me, I enjoy it, but there was a lot of preparation, um, even more so this week than usual. So I do want you to know that I approach this text, well, like, like any time we are going to stand and teach or preach the Word of God, we need to approach it very humbly, but even more so today, uh, very well understanding that there's different views on this text. Um, but really what I was praying about this week and what I, what I hope to accomplish, guys, is that this, this sermon will be Christ-centered, um, that you'll... That you'll Walk away today um, loving your Lord and Savior more. Okay? Not, not focused on what was that? <laughs> but that you'll see Christ. And so I was really thankful. I was talking with Shiloh the other day just about sermon prep. And different guys do it different ways. I typically do my outline last uh, before I really write out the sermon. Some guys do it first. And so I was really just kind of anxious yesterday of what this outline would look look like, but sometimes when you look at a text, it just bounces off the page. And so, really the outline and, and that goes along with the title, I was very pleased. It was actually very easy. I, I saw Christ as prophet, as priest, and as king in, this, in these verses. So, so I was very, very happy about that because that's what I wanted going into this. I, I didn't want to get stuck in the weeds, guys. Okay, anytime you're dealing with a difficult text, um, we want Christ to, to be the main focus. And so, hopefully, Lord willing, that's what will be the case today. So we just need to remember the context of the letter, the context of this section we've been in, right? It was um, written to Christians who are, who are suffering persecution, who've been scattered because of the persecution of Nero. And, and really, the section we've been in, even more so, we have been talking about how to suffer as a Christian. How to suffer for righteousness sake. You can go back to chapter 2 verse 21 and be reminded that Christ is our example. Uh, that's going to be in our text again today. In chapter 2 verse 21 it says, For you have been called for this purpose. It was talking about suffering in the verses previous to that and different, different examples, uh, different spheres of authority and just how we suffer righteously and these type of things. It says, You have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in His steps. And in verse 23, And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. So that's what we just keep seeing again and again in this letter is this whole topic of suffering and how to suffer the right way, and how to, how to deal with persecution, and how to respond. And, and Christ is always our example when we think about His life. And we see it again today in verse 18. 
in chapter 3. We'll, and we will we'll read the text here in a moment. But, in, but in, in verse 18, because if you remember last week, guys, in verses 13 through 17, again, the, the, the context, the topic was suffering. Suffering for the sake of righteousness. And in verse 17, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. You guys remember we talked about that. And then that word for in verse 18, just relating back to the previous section, says for also, in other words, just as believers in Asia Minor were suffering, the point is Christ did as well. For Christ also suffered. And that's where we're going to pick up today. For Christ also suffered. So if you guys will stand, we'll read, we'll read through the text. And then I will do my best, guys. I will do my best to take us through this text. 1 Peter 3, 18-22 For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. So that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In which also He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to Him. You guys can be seated. Alright. So we're going to hopefully clearly see Christ as, as prophet, priest, and king today. And so that's really how I got the sermon broken up in three points, three major points today. It's a little bit out of order than how we usually say that. We're going to look at first Christ as our priest, and then our prophet, and then lastly our king. So in verse 18, if you're taking notes today, the first point today, and it's going to have two subpoints underneath it, as our priest, as our priest, Christ reconciled us to God. As our priest, he reconciled us to God. And he did this two ways. We're going to, our two sub points, and then we'll come back to that, that, that phrase, bringing us to God. But he reconciled us to God as our priest, first of all, by his perfect life. Okay? So, verse 18, guys, you know, uh, my good friend Ronnie preached this passage about two or three months ago, so I'm kind of stealing from him by saying this. It's obvious when you look at the text. When you look at verse 18, what is it? This is the gospel, right? It's, the, it's, it's Christ on the cross. When you look at the end of verse 21 and verse 22, you see His resurrection and then His ascension. That'd be nice just to preach those verses and go home. But, but I say unfortunately, fortunately when you're preaching verse by verse, you're going to hit every text. And so that's the, that's the beauty of it and the difficulty of it at times. We're going we're gonna to plow through it. So first of all, we do see His work upon the cross. We see Him reconciled, that we are reconciled to God by His perfect life, first of all. In verse 18, it says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. So we'll just look at that word, that phrase, the just for the unjust. Or your version may say, the righteous for the unrighteous. Very, very simple thing we're looking at in this first point here. His perfect life. 
guys. He, he is righteous. He is just, right? Amen? He is without sin. He is, the, he is the perfect one. This is who went to the cross. The perfect Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. So He, he was perfect. He, that means He was without sin. He was without sin. We know the Bible says He knew no sin. We know the Bible says He fulfilled all righteous, righteousness. The very, the very commandment we looked at in the catechism. What does it say? You shall have um, no other gods before Me. To think that, that Jesus Christ kept that law and every other law of God every second of every minute of every day of every week of every month of every year of His life moment by moment. The entire law He kept perfectly. Something we can't do for a moment. This is who this was. He was the perfect one. He was perfectly just, perfectly righteous. When we know what the, what the second part of that phrase says, the unjust, the just, the righteous one died for the unrighteous. And we know that we are, we fit that category. We're not righteous. We are unrighteous. Paul says there is none righteous. How many? Not even one. And don't think that that's not there for a reason. It's the emphasis. Not even one. Not, it, not you, not me, but only Christ. So he, he reconciled us to God, first of all, by His perfect life. What we call His act of obedience. He was without sin. Secondly, as our priest, He reconciled us to God by His substitutionary one-time death. We see that in verse 18. By, he, he reconciled us to God by His substitutionary one-time death. For Christ also died or suffered for sins once for all. The just for the unjust. So that He might bring us to God. His substitutionary one-time death. The phrase again, again, I just spoke to it. The just for the unjust. This is substitution. It can, you, can, you, can, you can read it. It'll, sometimes you'll read vicarious or substitutionary. This is Christ, like Paul said in Romans 5-6. He died for who? The ungodly. You know that's all He had to die for. That's the only people he, who He had to die for is the ungodly. That's all that was here. But he, he died for the ungodly. The righteous for the unrighteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Right? We say it a lot. For our sake, He, God the Father, made Him, Christ, to be sin on our behalf. The One who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In other words, that is the only way that we can be made righteous is through His righteousness imputed to our account. This is um, substitutionary penal substitution. If you've heard those phrases. Substitutionary, Christ suffered for us. Penal substitution, Christ punished instead of us. That's what we see here. The just for the unjust. He didn't go to hell to finish His atonement. It was finished upon the cross. He paid. He, he was paying for my sin. I use myself as an example. He didn't have to go to hell to finish paying for my sin. He suffered it all at Calvary. 
Okay, today, if you're, if you're in Christ today, think about all of your sin that you have committed in your life and that you will commit. And think about what you would have suffered in an eternity in hell. Christ paid it all in a matter of hours upon the cross. That's what He was suffering on the cross. When he, what did He cry out? My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? All of it. He drank the full cup of God's wrath for your sin and my sin. And then it says He did it once for all. Christ also died for sins once for all. Just meaning for all time. Right? For all time. It's a one-time sacrifice. Turn over to Hebrews. Hebrews 10. Speak to this beautifully. Hebrews 10, 11, and 12. This one time. This once for all. Hebrews 10, verses 11 and 12. <clears throat> Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Again, which was all a picture of Christ. But He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, set down at the right hand of God. There, there's our, our, our one-time sacrifice. And then He set down. And what did the sitting down shout? What did it, what did it signify? It is finished. One-time sacrifice. It is finished. No need for the Roman Catholic Mass. Right, Gerald? No need for it. No need for it. It's blasphemy. You don't, you don't crucify the Son of God all over again. He made the one-time sacrifice. He is our great high priest. And what's amazing about it, He's also our sacrifice. He's both the priest and the sacrifice. So that He might bring us to God. There's that phrase in verse 18, which is really back to the, the main point of number one. As our, as our priest, He reconciled us to God. And that's what that phrase means in verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. There's one way to the Father. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. So that's what this is saying. That's what that signifies. This, this phrase so that He might bring us to God. Reconcile us to God, right? We're at enmity with God outside of Christ. We're separated from God. It, the Bible says your sins have separated you. We're not right with God apart from Christ. But He brings us to God. He brings us into His presence. He reconciles us. He, he, two opposing parties, okay? He brings into a right relationship. So, so the phrase, do you have a relationship with Christ? It's okay, but really the better question is, do you have a right relationship with God through Christ? Everybody's got a relationship with God. You're either at, at enmity with Him, or you're His child, you're His friend, you're adopted into His family. So He brings us into a right relationship with God. Matthew 27, verse 51. 
really kind of symbolizes this when, when Christ was upon the cross. Right before he died, it says after he, or, or at the time of his death, it says after he yielded up his spirit, Matthew 27 51, it says the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, obviously signifying that God did it because of the height and the thickness of it. It, it, it was torn in two from top to bottom. Again, God is the one who did it symbolically demonstrating that this reality that this verse is talking about. Access to God now. Access to God. Access to the Holy of Holies. To the throne of grace. Beloved, you guys have access to the Holy of Holies. The throne of grace. You don't have to hear, you know, like you hear many times when you're out in the street preaching the Gospel, you know, and people are like, well, you know, I, yeah, I'll get right with God this Sunday when I get to the church building. Well, first of all, that's that's foolish talk because you might die the next day before you make it to church. But even as believers, we don't have to wait till we get to God's house to go to be in, in fellowship with Him. We go straight to the throne of grace because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you're in the deepest, darkest prison cell or whether with your brothers or sisters. The Holy of Holies is open to the people of God because of Christ. It's available for immediate access. And back over in Hebrews real quickly. Chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Just to really sum up what we said up to this point. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And I don't know about you guys, but I know that my time of need is daily. We we need God's grace every day. And so that was our first thing we saw as our priests. Christ has reconciled us to God through His perfect life and His Death upon the cross. Secondly, well, maybe we can skip this part. Just go to verse 22. No? Alright. Uh, secondly, we're going, to see, we're going to see Christ as our prophet. Okay? Christ as our, pro- as our prophet, He makes proclamation. That's one of the functions He does as a prophet. We're not going to necessarily look, you know, as a, as a, as a prophet, he, he, he teaches as well. But we're going to see that He makes proclamation. These are basically his three offices that we see in the scriptures: prophet, priest, and king. And so, as as our prophet, he makes proclamation. We're going to look at the the, sec, the last half of verse eighteen all the way through uh, a good portion of verse twenty. This is where we'll be at most of the day here, most of the message. Before we really look at it, just want to look at a few phrases here in verses in, in verse eighteen. And then the same thing in verse 19. And then we'll, then we'll dig in it and I'll uh, share with you my thoughts on it. Um, in verse 18, so it says, He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Having been put to death in the flesh, just His, just his, his earthly life, His physical death on the cross. Okay, That's all that's referring to, made alive in the Spirit. His resurrected life. 
The invisibility of the spirit realm or the, or the realm of the Holy Spirit's activity is the best way I could write it down to explain it to you. Now, we're going to get into verse 19 here in a moment. And again, um, just want to you know, just want to remind you that I do. I, I approach a text like this um, just very, very humbly, uh, uh, you know, acknowledging that there's been many brilliant minds through church history who, who disagree on this. And I, th- I think the main thing is, is I think I think we're going to see Christ glorified in it. And I think Christ can be glorified in it with a couple of the particular views, no matter which one you take. But listen to what Martin Luther said about this text. He said, A wonderful text this is, and a, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain just what Peter means. <laughs> so, you know, and I think, I was telling Trish, I think the only, I'm, not, I'm never going to know Probably, oh well, I can just say till I get to heaven. <laughs> I know what other men think, but it's just one of those passages where there's just a little bit of mystery to it. Not that there's not a genuine meaning, but I, I do approach it. Now, now I approach it, I, I mean, I studied as much time as I had to study this text, so, but I do, I think we have to approach it with Luther's mindset that uh, for certainty what it means. But I am approaching it very humbly. I, I want our focus to be on Jesus Christ. I want you to leave again worshiping your God today. Now, before we get started, I want to read to you real briefly the different views on this. Now, primarily there's two, but it's really uh, kind of broken down more into five different views. Because within one view, there's um, you can kind of break it down into three or four others. So this came out, I just made a copy of it, it's really short. This came out of one of my commentaries, the New Testament commentary series of uh, William Hendrickson, and he died, and a guy by the name of Simon Kistemaker finished it. So, But he, I think he did, I think it did best as far as just briefly giving you each view, okay? And, he, and he's got it in chronological sequence. He says, interpretations of this particular text are many. Here are some of them listed in chronological sequence. First of all, uh, the first view. Clement, early church father Clement of Alexandria, about 200 A.D., taught that Christ went to hell in His Spirit to proclaim the message of salvation to the souls of sinners who were imprisoned there since the flood. I think we can easily, easily go, okay, to preach salvation to those who had already passed on. No, I think that's easy to that's an easy one to dismiss. Hebrews nine twenty seven. It's been appointed for a man once to die, and after that the judgment. So we know that after death, there's not another chance for salvation. So we can push that one to the side. Secondly, in chronological order, around the time of. About A.D. 400, Augustine, early church father, said that the pre-existent Christ proclaimed salvation through Noah to the people who lived before the flood. Okay? Um, some other men, just in the reading that I did, and some of my commentaries uh, who held to this, John Gill, Matthew Poole, Matthew Henry, Wayne Grudem. Um, and then I was just listening to stuff this morning on... Southern seminaries got questions and answers, and a guy by the name of Bruce Ware also held to that. I read Calvin on this, and I'm going to tell you, he lost me. 
He's the only guy that I read. I don't know what he believes on this. I, he, I was just going, I don't know. I don't know. He lost me along. Maybe I was tired and reading too much, but uh, I couldn't tell you what he believes. <laughs> Sometimes he gets like that, though. Uh, and then thirdly, in the last half of the 16th century, Cardinal Robert uh, Bellarmine introduced a view that has been held by many Roman Catholics uh, in his spirit, Christ went to release the souls of the righteous who repented before the flood and had been kept in limbo. That is the place between heaven and hell where Bellarmine said the souls of the Old Testament saints were kept. Again, I think you can dismiss that one. The Scriptures do not teach limbo. Uh, the Scriptures teaches for the believer, absent from the body, present with the Lord, for the unbeliever, torment. You know, I thought of the rich man and Lazarus. There is no limbo. There is no purgatory. There is no second chances. So I think you can dismiss that one. Fourthly, an interpretation promulgated by Friedrich Spitta uh, in the last decade of the 19th century is this. After his death and before his resurrection, Christ preached to the, to the fallen angels, also known as sons of God, who during Noah's time had married daughters of men. Okay, uh, This would be what, if I'm not mistaken, what John MacArthur holds to. That it was not after his resurrection, but between his death and resurrection that, they, that he was preaching to these... And let me read that again. That Christ preached to fallen angels, also known as the sons of God, who during Noah's time had married the daughters of men. You can find that account in Genesis 6. Genesis 6, 1 through 4. That's really one of the debated passages. Is, um, and this, this, this could very well be true. Um, this is John MacArthur's view. And I, and I want to come back to this. Or I want to say this because I'm going to come back to it. And if I'm not mistaken, and, and again, with each, within each one of these, there may be some variances from teacher to teacher. But within this view, um, if you go back and read Genesis 6, 1-4, through 4, if, that is, if that is indeed what happened, that these fallen angels basically had, I, I would see it through possessing men, marrying women and having, this, and, and having, having these children, that this heinous sin of these demons is really what provoked God to send the flood or what ultimately led to the flood. So that's, that's, that, um, that's that view. And then fifthly, uh, contemporary commentators teach that the resurrected Christ, okay, so this would be after His resurrection, not, not in those three days before, when, when He ascended into heaven, proclaimed to imprisoned spirits His victory over death. Okay, just um, and I, you know, and I think I'll, I'll just say this. I, I went usually, of course. Usually, you're not dealing with the text like this. So by Saturday morning, I'm just I'm ready to write out my sermon. I worked all day. I read Monday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night. Worked all day Thursday. I, I went into the week thinking I was holding a certain view. By Thursday, I changed it, and then by Friday night, I changed it back. So I had to go <laughs> redo stuff. So, but I will say this: that the the last view, whether that's what's going on in this text or not, I mean, I say that's obviously true. I, I mean, I think Christ, after His resurrection, there's proclamation in the spirit realm that He is victorious. 
And, and, I, and I will say this. I started out, because I'll reveal it now, okay? Um, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to spend the rest of the remainder of the, of the sermon um, defending the second view that Christ through Noah was preaching to those people of that time. That's where I started out this week. And then I ended up in that last view. But I will say about both one of them, and I was telling my wife, whichever view it is or isn't, the other one I could say is true. Because even if this text is not talking about the Spirit of Christ preaching through Noah, that really did happen. When Noah was preaching, the Spirit of Christ was speaking through him to those people. And if that's the view held, then the other view is still true. If, if, am I making sense? That Christ did proclaim victory. He has proclaimed victory in the spiritual realm. Okay, It's well known that Christ is Lord. The demonic realm knows it. So I don't want to get too caught up into that. But that's where I'm, gonna, that's where I'm going to land is on the, the view that Christ through Noah... Christ's Spirit through Noah was preaching to the people of that time whose spirits are now in prison. Okay, so let's look at the text. In verse 19. I'm going I'm to just read 18 again. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which... Also, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Okay, so I'm going to go through a, 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 a few key words and phrases and then just spend several minutes, I guess you could say, talking about this text, talking about this view. Okay? In which, the, the, the term in which, in verse 19, in which he also went and made proclamation, refers back to in the spirit of verse 18. That he would have been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also uh, went and made proclamation. That phrase it just means in which in which realm, namely the spiritual realm, in the realm of the spirit's activity. That the phrase also in verse nineteen, in which also he went and made public or made proclamation, adding emphasis. This word also is adding emphasis to the. Impression that a distinct subject is being introduced. He was made alive in the spiritual realm and he also did something else in the spiritual realm which was make proclamation. Obviously the question is, is who is he proclaiming to? That's, I mean, that's the question that men have been trying to answer for centuries. But the word proclamation, it just means a heralding. Okay, a heralding. And the message could differ based on the circumstance or the context, right? If he is just if he is announcing something to fallen angels, then it's a proclamation of victory. Which I think that's going to happen. I think that happened either way. It's a proclamation of victory. If he is indeed if this it indeed is talking about Christ preaching through the spirit of Christ preaching through Noah, then it's a message of the gospel, in other words. So the the word proclamation the message could differ based on the circumstance. And then spirits. Who are the spirits? It's either human, or the word spirits can mean either human spirits or, or angelic. Fallen angelic spirits. Fallen angels. 
Most of the time the word's used, it is used for angelic, but not all the time. This same word is used for, for human spirits. And then the word prison. This is really where I struggle the most. In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. But the word prison really just has the idea of a place awaiting the final judgment. It's not the final judgment, but it's a place awaiting the final judgment. And then, and then this key word here, guys, I think it's important. If you have a New American Standard, you're going to see a word that's in here that I don't think any of your other versions have this word, and it's the word now. In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. And it's going to be in italics. And this is why. Um, I went back and read at the beginning of my, at the beginning of my, my New American Standard Bible because I remember reading that years ago when I purchased it. Um, this, this word, and you'll see these words in italics every so often in the NAS. And it's there for a reason. These italics are used in the text to indicate words which were not found in the original but implied by it. And, and, and that's the same thing that, that the guy that I was listening to this morning said. I guess he had an NAS. That this word now is real important in this text. That these spirits, they're now in prison. Okay? Um, and so I'll, I'll come back to that here in a little bit. But so, so, who do I believe Christ is making proclamation to? I, I believe He's making proclamation to the spirits of people. To, or that He was making proclamation to people in Noah's day who were, as verse 20 says, really what led me to this view was really verse 20. The more I looked at it, I think, I think the, that verse 20 answers it, at least for me in my mind. He, he was making proclamation to the people in Noah's day who in verse 20, who once were disobedient whose spirits are now in prison awaiting the final judgment, which is obviously the lake of fire at the time of the final resurrection. But again, verse 20 is really why I believe this. I believe it fits with the immediate context and the context of the whole letter better. And I I think you can make a case for really both of those views that they fit the context but in Genesis 6, 5 through 13, I'm not going to go back and read it, guys, but if you'll, you, can, you can go back and read it, just mark it. Genesis 6, 5 through 13, I believe, clearly emphasizes that it was human sin that provoked God to flood the world in judgment, not the supposed sin of demons. And I say supposed, not because it didn't happen, but because it's not. 100% clear. But I, but I think that when you read that, it's very clear that it was human sin why God judged the world with a flood, not this supposed sin of demons. Who, who can, you can really see this in a clear way through some extra-biblical literature like the book of Enoch. It clearly, it clearly presents this, this case. And I'm not even saying that because it's not true. I'm just saying what you can clearly see in Genesis 6, 5-13 was that God, it never says God was sorry that He made angels, but that He made man. He doesn't say that He blotted out fallen angels, but He blotted out man. 
It wasn't the corruption and violence of, of something that the demons did that aroused His anger, but man's. That's, that's just what's clearly in the text. Verse 20. Look at verse 20. Who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. He was patient for humans to repent. He was patient for humans to repent. I believe the very humans that know the Spirit of Christ, what this text is saying, that, that Christ through Noah was preaching to. It says He was patient for humans to repent. Obviously not demons. He, and I'm not saying that if you hold another view, you, you think that He's waiting for demons to repent. I'm just emphasizing that I think that's what verse 20 is saying. He was, he was patient for roughly a thousand years since Adam's sin. You think of Adam's sin from the very beginning and then, and then their children, Cain's sin when he murdered his brother Abel. God was patient from that very, those very first sins. The song we sang, I mean, that, that just popped in my mind. Why didn't God kill them right off? Because He was patient. He was, but He was also patient during the building of the ark, which is the immediate context of verse 20. He was patient during the ark, which was the building of the ark, which was 120 years, Genesis 6:3. Then the Lord said, "My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years." I think that's what that's emphasizing: that the building of the ark was 120 years. That Noah was not only building this ark, but he was preaching at the same time. And it's Peter that tells us that in, in 2 Peter 2.5. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So I think that's what's going on. When you think about Noah building and preaching and the, and the opposition and the pushback and the mocking that he faced during that time, which I think fits right along with our context of suffering, the mocking in the, from this world. When you think, Noah, 120 years did this. What a fool he must have been. In a world that it had never rained. And he's building a boat. The, again, the spirits in prison. These spirits in prison at the time of Peter's writing, but who were once disobedient at the time of Noah during the construction of the ark. 120 years when Christ through Noah, when the Spirit of Christ through Noah was preaching to them. Guys? And that phrase, that, that's... Uh, guys, when you preach the Gospel, the Spirit of Christ is doing the same thing through you. Think about what 2 Corinthians 5 says. It talks about being reconciled to God. And it says, as though God is making His appeal through us to others. That's what I tell people all the time. God is begging you through me. That's what the text says. And I think that's all that's saying. Ephesians 2, 16 and 17, I, I believe says some of the same language. Ephesians 2, 16 and 17 says this. Uh, talking about Christ and His death, how it reconciled... Uh, it put, put a death, the enmity between Jew and Gentile. 2, 16 and 17, and might reconcile them both, the Jew and the Gentile, in one body to God through the cross, 
by it having put to death the enmity. And He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Through the apostles, through whoever they heard the Gospel from, that Christ came and preached. And so I think that's, what, I think that's the language of the text we're looking at. And again, just, just, uh, just really making different points that I think support this view in Matthew 24, 37. Jesus says this. Oh, uh, hold on. Before I, before I go there, I got, I got one, other, yeah, one other verse. In, in 1 Peter, I think in a similar way, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, you can kind of see the same thing going on. Do you guys remember we went through that several months ago? I'll read 10 and 11. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Again, the Spirit of Christ through the prophets. But in Matthew 24, 37, it says this, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. We're all familiar with that, right? I mean, that's, that's a... But what's He saying to His disciples? Be watchful, right? Be ready. Be watchful. I believe all He's saying is human rebellion and human disobedience is what's in mind when you think of, when you think of why God sent the flood. Not a particular sin that fallen angels had committed. I think that's the focus. Peter doesn't say that Christ preached to spirits who disobeyed by marrying human women. But I think, but rather, but, but spirits who disobeyed while the ark was being built. In verse 20. I think it says when they disobeyed. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. Again, coming back to that word, the NAS, the word now. Now, those who are now in prison. And the reason I, reason I brought that up and I come back to it, if you look over at chapter 4, verse 6, you see something very similar, which we'll be at probably in two weeks. I'll probably preach a step back from 1 Peter next week. But, but look, at, look at 1 Peter 4, 6. And, and, and in my reading, even those who, who maybe held a different view, differing views on this text, on who these spirits are, Agree. I know John MacArthur does. Agree. Look, look at verse 6. I'll read it and then comment. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. And I think it's similar to chapter 4, verse 6 in this way. This is best understood to mean that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead but alive when the Gospel was preached to them. You see it? Just, these people are now dead, but the Gospel was preached to them before they were dead. So, a message, a message, from, a message of repentance from Noah, I believe, fits the context of verse 20. Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah 
And Noah's preaching and preaching and preaching the Spirit of Christ through Noah during the construction of the ark, 120 years. This is a um, quote. I don't even think it's a direct quote, but it's, I, I think I just paraphrased it, but I want to give credit out of Wayne Grudem's commentary. He says this on the larger context. Okay, The, the larger context. Starting all the way back in chapter 2, verse 11, guys. Uh, where it said, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And then you guys remember we, we looked at the, how we're to behave to the, before the governing authorities, the workplace relationship, slave-master relationship, the husband and wife relationship. That's the context. Starting in 2.11, it concerned Christians living in an unbelieving, hostile world and the need of keeping a good witness with their lives and their proclamation, which is what we talked about last week in, in verse 15, which, which is obviously uh, the, the, the proclamation, which is obviously the immediate context of this passage, I believe, with the proclamation of Noah, that, that Christ, or, or I think that's how it fits the context, that, that our, our witness and with our lives and our proclamation and how we endure suffering. And he goes on to say this, that or, or if Christ was, that Christ was proclaiming a message of victory to fallen angels after His death doesn't seem to fit the context quite as well. Although I would say I added to that. I believe, I mean, his, obviously His triumph over the demonic realm is something to cause us to worship Christ. And I think that is true in the Scriptures, but whether it's talking about that in this text, no one knows for sure. But some more similarities between Noah and Peter's readers. Just as Noah was faithful, okay, and was in a small minority. I mean, what does it say in verse 20? We'll speak to that here in a minute. In which a few, that is eight persons, were saved, right? Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Just as Noah was faithful and was in a small minority as he boldly preached repentance. Church, so are you. So are we. Okay? We're going to be in a small minority. And Noah, I believe, is an example to us in this text. To be faithful, right? We don't see Noah... Throwing any carnivals or anything. No, he just preached and built. Just preached and built and was mocked and laughed. We see the faithfulness. We see his faithfulness for 120 years. I can't even imagine. We are so, I think, even, even if we know better, we're so prone to look for results when God just calls us to be faithful. You want to think about somebody being faithful? Think about Noah. 120 years. Says he was a righteous man, he was a faithful man, he was a preacher of righteousness. Christ, and again, I already said this, but but Christ preaches through us as well. Okay? When you share the gospel with somebody, the Spirit of Christ is preaching through you. It's God, you know, we talk about the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, right? It's a triune God, but the Spirit of God, it says is making an appeal through you to that person. Begging that person through, through His servant 
to be reconciled to God. Also, God waited patiently in Noah's day. We see that in verse 20, right? God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Or it says, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. He waits patiently in ours as well, does He not? When you're proclaiming the Gospel. 2 Peter 3.9 Very familiar text. I use all the time when I'm preaching outdoors. The Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Don't you think Noah was preaching similar language? Uh, judgment's coming. God is patient. God is patient. Repent. And He was patient for 120 years. But it says, The Lord is not slow about His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We are the Noahs of our day, guys. Who else is going to tell them? Noah was rescued again with just a few others, and so we will be as well. We will be as well. Don't ever get caught up in, in numbers. Yes, I mean, I don't say that lightly. Yes, we want people to come to Christ, but be more concerned with being faithful. Matthew Henry says this, this as far as this, just a few being saved here, this eight. He says, the way of the most is neither the best, the wisest, nor the safest way to follow. Better to follow the eight in the ark than the eight million drowned by the flood and damned to hell. So we need to be faithful, guys. Don't ever get caught up in, the, in, the, in the, what direction the culture's going. Even if you're the only one standing for Christ, stand strong. And then what better quote? Yeah, Matthew Henry's good, but what does Christ say in Matthew 7, 13 and 14? Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. Here's our prophet, right? Christ the prophet. And there are many who enter through it. Right? The, 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 the gate and the road to hell is broad, it's wide, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are a few who find it. May we never forget that. May we never forget that. If you're here today and you do not know Christ, may you never forget that. That you may be surrounded by people who agree with you, and it may seem, it may seem so foolish when you look at the wisdom of the world, and the foolishness of the Gospel, and the foolishness of a man dying on a cross. But just know this, that, that way is narrow. Yeah, that way is small. There may be a few that find it. But it's the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We looked at, we looked at what He did upon the cross. We looked at the fact that only, we can only be made righteous through his righteousness given to us as a gift. And then we're going to look at His resurrection in a moment, which is really our true hope. So that's, so that's, that's Christ as our prophet, guys. That's Christ as our prophet. I hope whatever, whatever, whatever view you hold to in that text, just understand this, that, that Christ is the hero. Okay, That yes, He is triumphant. And that we have a gospel message to preach. 
So I think either I think either way we look at it, we, we can see, we can glean off of either way, either either view. That that he is he is our prophet. He makes proclamation through us. He made proclamation through Noah, whether that text is referring to that or not. And he is triumph over the demonic realm, whether that text is speaking to that or not. So that's just where I'll leave it. But and then lastly, this will be in. Um, in verse 20 through verse 22, as our King, okay, we're going to look at Him as our King now, He protects us. Christ protects us. In verse 20, the end of verse 20, we saw where only eight persons were saved, and it says we're brought safely through the water. We'll just look at that phrase for a minute. We're brought safely through the water. In other words, through the ark. Through the ark, God preserved them from the floodwaters, the very floodwaters that uh, judged the, the, all the others, while the rest perished in those same waters. Let's remember what this ark, guys, signified, what it symbolized. Christ, right? God the Son rescues us from the very wrath that was poured out on Him on the cross that we talked about earlier. Okay? And we'll speak to that more, but yeah, what, what was the ark a picture of? Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to tell people. Get into the ark. Get, in, get into the safety, the, the boat of Christ because God's judgment's coming. And it's not going to be water this time. Peter says, Second Peter, it's going to be fire. So as our King, He protects us. And we'll look at, we'll look at three... Three subpoints, and we'll finish. First of all, he protects us in baptism. Okay, so we just thought we were done with the difficult language here. A lot of your heretics will turn to this. They'll turn to this one and Acts two thirty eight. Baptism saves. Okay, but I, I really don't think this is a lot of difficulty to this. Just on the surface, it is. So he says, co- corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. Okay, so so as our King, He protects us in baptism. Corresponding to that, it says. In other words, it's a type or anti-type. But corresponding to that, He says, baptism now saves you. So, So, I'll try to break this down. The, the waters of the flood, right, brought death. The waters of the flood brought death. Baptism, which I think everybody in here would agree, I think it's very clear in the Scripture, uh, being immersed, plunged underwater, it brings or, or is a picture of or represents death. Okay? It represents death. So, before we go any further, before I explain that, this is not talking about water baptism. I think Peter makes that very clear. Right? I mean, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. What would remove dirt from the flesh? Water baptism. What's up, Dylan? So, it's not talking about water baptism. I think he makes it clear. So, but, but again, baptism is a picture of death. Okay? Listen to... Uh, Listen to a couple scriptures just to, to drive this point home. Listen how Jesus describes his coming death 
In Mark 10, 38, 39, we're going to look at two passages real quick. Mark 10, Mark 10, 38 and 39, he says this to his disciples. So they had just asked him, you know, hey, they said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory, you know. So they had um, some messed up priorities at that time. But Jesus said to them in verse 38, Mark 10, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? They said to Him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized. Talking about His suffering and death, and even how they were going to follow in His steps. And then the, in Luke 12.50, uh, a similar passage, He says this, I have a baptism to undergo, and listen to this, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. And what was His last words on the cross in the Greek? It is accomplished. To Telestai. He was speaking about His death. Calling it a baptism. Okay, and so Christian baptism symbolizes our identification with His death, burial, and resurrection. Right? What do we say? What do we say when somebody's baptized in the water? It's a picture of being buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. Where do we get that language from? Romans chapter 6. I don't think Paul could be any more clear about it. Romans 6, 3-5, really, really this is that picture of what water baptism is, but this is spiritual baptism. This is being baptized into Christ by faith. What is the baptism that saves? It's not water, but it's being baptized into Christ. The baptism of Christ. The baptism of the Spirit. Being baptized into Christ. Romans 6, 3-5, if you guys will turn there. It's really good. This is where we get the language when we, when we baptize believers. 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 Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead, here they come out of the water, it's what it's a picture of, that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. There's a picture of baptism. So we're, so we're protected by, by Christ our King in baptism. When we come to Him by faith, and it says we died with Him on the cross. We were buried with Him, and then we were raised with Him. And which is our next sub-point, through His resurrection. We're protected by baptism through the resurrection. Believers, here's the point, believers survive the death of baptism by being united to Christ by faith. Okay, Colossians 2.12 says this, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. See that? We're we're protected 
by our King, ultimately through His resurrection. Right? If apart from His resurrection, right, well, what are we doing here today? Let's go home. Eat, drink, be merry. Right? I mean, we're to be pitied above all. But yes, indeed, Christ has risen. So in other words, we're saved ultimately through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which is Peter's language back in chapter 1, verse 3. One of the favorite messages that I ever preached, really, is just, the if you guys remember, the hope, the living hope of the resurrection. Or through the resurrection. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our hope. Okay? So let's, let me just remind you that that is your hope. Let me remind you that when you're preaching the Gospel, don't forget about the resurrection, right? We don't preach, yeah, Christ died. You ever thought about it in the, in, the, in the early church? If that would have been their message, they'd have been going, yeah, I know He died. What's the point? They emphasized the resurrection. No, the one whom you put to death is alive. And so that's what, that is really our ultimate hope. So the picture of the ark going into the ark, in a sense, was, was a type of burial. Coming out, right? Picture of resurrection unto new life. And then anyone, that phrase, uh, not a removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. Anyone who would desire to be saved must come to God through His way. Repentance and faith in Christ. Right? And those who are born again, those of us who are born again, do we not plead for forgiveness when we sin against God? Right? We, we plead for forgiveness. We, we come to Him for cleansing. And we receive through the, through the new birth, right? Through the new birth, we receive a cleansed conscience. A good conscience, like the text says. Free from accusation and condemnation. We receive this good conscience. And then lastly... We are protected by our King from all enemies. Okay? From all enemies. Noah was protected. Even though Noah suffered at the hands of a, of a world that hated him, hated his message, mocked him, in the end he was protected because he had faith in God. He demonstrated his faith by his obedience and he was, he was protected. It says he's at the right hand of God in verse 22. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to Him. The right hand of God, guys, we know that's the, a, a place of ultimate prestige and power where Christ is at right now, right? His ascension as King, right? He is reigning right now with all authority, is He not? That's who Christ is. That's why we're protected. That's why we can go out and preach the Gospel and disciple those who believe. I emphasize those who believe. We disciple those who believe. We baptize them. We disciple them. Because of what? He has all authority. He has all authority. I remember a guy telling an illustration about that. You know, think of, think of when, you get, when you get stopped on the side of a road by a highway patrol. And, and you know... It doesn't matter what your opinion is. When you break the law and He's wearing that badge, He has the authority. Christ has the authority. And it's not some authority. It's all authority. And it's on heaven and earth. 
That is our king. And then three texts we're going to look at real quickly. The phrase, He's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, His ascension, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him. Let's, let's look at the authorities, the angels, authorities, and powers. Some suggest that this is just spiritual. Some suggest it's leaders of this world and spiritual. So let's just look at all of it real quickly. Let's remind ourselves what we looked at in Psalms 2 several months ago. Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. Because what's our last point before we finish? We're protected by our king from all enemies. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son or kiss the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. We see a clear warning to the leaders of the earth, to the enemies of God who are in this life, to human beings and in places of, of, of power and authority. We see a warning. And, and, and of course, the, the blessing for us, how blessed are all who take refuge in Him. You're safe. Right? What, what was Noah saying? Take refuge in the ark. And the Scriptures say we are blessed since we have taken refuge in Christ. And then... Ephesians 6.12 I've got it written down. For our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood. Our real struggle is not against governing authorities or any other authority in this world, but it's, it's against flesh. It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Those are our real enemies. But we are safe. We're safe in Christ. Which really, I mean, I have no problem either. I mean, if this is talking about Christ proclaiming to the spirits, the fallen angels in the spiritual realm, His victory, then amen. I think He does that anyway. That they are defeated. That Christ is Lord. That He is King. And then lastly, Philippians 2 Verses 8-11, through 11, another passage we turn to often because it is so good. Philippians 2, 8-11 through 11, says this. You take all of this, all of, these, all of these enemies, whether they be spiritual, whether they be men on this, in this earth, this is speaking to all of us. This is speaking to you in this room today. Okay? Everybody. And being found in appearance as a man, Christ, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The most humiliating suffering and death a man could experience, God the Son experienced. For this reason also, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. This is the risen Christ at the right hand of God so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every wicked, vile 
spirit, fallen angel is going to bow to him. Every mocker, all the mockers of Noah's day, all the mockers of nowadays are going to bow to Christ and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so take comfort, beloved. If you have bowed your knee to Christ, then He is your King. And you are, like, like David said, how blessed are all who take refuge in Him. We are blessed. We are protected. And so as Peter told us last week in verse 14, don't fear their threats because of that. Amen? Don't fear their threats, beloved. You guys are blessed. You're protected. And you're under the protection of your King. Let's pray. Thank You, Lord. Thank You, Father, for this Word. Father, we thank You, Lord, that no matter where we turn in Your Word, that we see Christ. We thank You for the victory that we see in this passage, Lord. We thank You for the, the, the work on the cross that we see in this passage, Lord. We thank You for your, the resurrection that we see, the, the ascension of our King. And Lord, we thank You for the, the faithfulness of Noah and all of Your saints, Lord, down through the ages. We thank You that Christ is triumphant over all of His enemies. And because we are in Him, because we have taken refuge in Him, we are blessed. We are protected. We are safe. We are loved. We are adopted into Your family. So Father, I pray, Lord, for everybody in here, God, that they would walk away from here today, God, worshiping You. Seeing You, seeing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in a small way as our our great prophet, priest, and king. We love You. We praise You. ask You to bless our uh, fellowship, Lord. I ask You to bless Dylan today as he... As we look back on how you've worked in, um, in believers in the past and how we can benefit and be edified from that. In Christ's name, amen.